And now, from Kansas City, literally the best place on earth, it's time for the real hooligans. All right, hooligans, welcome back to a very special episode of Real Hooligans. My name is Tim English. I am your host. Um, I'm going to be flying solo today because we have a very special guest that's going to be joining us here in just a few minutes. Um, this is a very special two-part episode um, of Real Hooligans. I always loved during the 80s uh, shows would always have the very special episodes, you know. Uh, this is a very special episode of Real Hooligans. We're going to time jump again today, or in this episode, but we're going to be time jumping a certain actor's career. I'm going to be talking to uh, Mr. Richard Dreyfus. Uh, here in just a few minutes, uh, we're going to get Richard on the phone, and uh, he and I are going to be talking about, uh, uh, you know, his career. Um, I, I've picked several movies um, that I, I have always enjoyed that I would love to speak with him about. I've got a few questions. I've got uh, maybe 20 minutes to talk to him, so we're going to see if we can make this work. Um, I'm freaking out. I'm nervous as hell, but I'm excited. Uh, he's always been one of my favorite actors, uh, Jaws. Going back to Jaws when I was a kid, it scared the hell out of me. Uh, Close Encounters, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, Goodbye Girl uh, with Neil Simon, one of my favorite writers. Uh, my God, you want to, you know, just everything. Stand By Me, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, Let It Ride, uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. Uh, what about Bob? These are all movies we're going to talk to him about. Um, so, yeah, so very cool. Uh, Mr. Dreyfus is in Kansas City on April 4th at the... Uh, Carlson Center at uh, Johnson County Community College. And you can get tickets for that event if you just, you know, go on Facebook or whatever and uh, just search Jawing with Richard Dreyfus. Uh, the event is Thursday, April 4th uh, from 4 to 11 p.m. There's, you know, a bunch of different tickets you can buy for it. So, uh, you know, there's somewhere you can actually sit and meet with them. Uh, the event is hosted by my good friend, Michael Smith, uh, from media Mike's, uh, Michael helped us get this interview. So I'm thrilled. I'm excited. Uh, and we appreciate it. And now what we're going to do is we're going to talk to, uh, we're going to get Richard Dreyfus on the phone here in just a minute. And, uh, so we're going to talk to him. It's going to be awesome. And then this episode will post. The second half of this episode will actually post in two weeks, okay? So we're going to do another episode um, this weekend with Alan Rapp. It's going to be like Comic-Con shit and uh, uh, summer movie preview, stuff like that. I saw Dumbo, whatever. So we'll talk about that, um, but that's going to be whatever. The next episode. So this is Richard Dreyfus part one. Richard Dreyfus part two will post in two weeks. And I think then we're going to have Michael Smith with us. Uh, David and Michael and I will all, we'll, we'll talk Richard Dreyfus and some of his big movies. And uh, we'll probably time jump three movies in that episode. So, all right, guys, are you excited? I'm really excited too. So uh, let me get Richard on the phone right now. And uh, dude, we're going to have some fun. All right, stay tuned. All right, we have Richard Dreyfus on the line. After a few attempts, we got him here with us. He actually gave us a call. Richard, appreciate you calling. Uh, I'm going to give you like a, figure I'll give you like a, tell you briefly kind of what my show is, and then we'll just jump into some questions. Does that sound all right? Sure. Okay, so um, my show each week, what my, my co-host David and I do, and he's not present today, but so it's just you and I. Um, but what we do is we pick, um, like, we kind of time jump throughout film history, and we'll pick a few movies from different, you know, like a movie from three or four different decades, 
or we'll pick, uh, you know, a few movies within a genre or within a decade, you know, and just kind of zero in and kind of compare, contrast, stuff like that. So I kind of wanted to do that with you, kind of, you know, go through um, some movies kind of I grew up watching, you know, some of my favorite movies uh, that you've been in and uh, just kind of get your thoughts on kind of a few of them. Sure. Let me ask you a question. Do go you for include it. in your... Uh, in your kit bag, uh, the films made between 1931 and 1960. Uh, we went back and did uh, one of the episodes recently. We did the 39 Steps. Ah, okay. So. Okay. The trick is, I think, that you have to show enough of them so that they're not just considered exotic black and whites. And uh, I... I've always maintained that if I was going to teach a class in film, I would require that every everyone in the class see at least 50 um, films made by American studios between in the sound era before 1960. Oh, that's that's a great idea. I mean, because film filmmaking's changed so much, and there was so much being done early on. Um, you know, storytelling wise, you know, they, they weren't able to do as much with sound or effects as they can do now. So there was so much going on uh, with writing and, you know, what was presented on screen that I think is really remarkable. And if people take the time to watch them, you know, they're, it, I think you gain a real appreciation for film because of that, you know? Well, I don't think you can ever, you cannot find uh, films whose screenplays touch touch the toes of the earlier ones because uh, the in a director's kit bag the most important ones now the tools are editing the CGI etc and in the old days it was story dialogue prose character and uh, there were no um it's given for great special effects uh, and and editing uh, as it should now followed the director and but you can't find screenplays except maybe in all honesty since since uh, the 90s I would say there's one film the Unforgiven by Clint Eastwood. Oh, great food. Great movie, yeah. Which has a great, great, great screenplay. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually and, read that screenplay, so and yeah. it's too bad because uh, the thing that made films great in the old days was censorship. The, the fact that the writers had to do it all because they couldn't show anything. And so the writing is superb. Even for films that were uh, intentionally grade B factory films, if you look at films uh, that MGM put out, you know, the, the stars may be Clark Gable and Lana Turner, but they were making a piece of shit Western. <laughs> right. And, and even the screenplays for those films are a thousand times better than the ones being made now. Oh I, yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree. I mean, there's so much, and you know, and the the guy that does my show with me, uh, he's just you know a buddy of mine that he's really into movies. So it, it's almost like I'm using this as an opportunity to go back and I show him movies, 
you know, that, yeah. you know, that in, in, and I'm kind of like, okay, dude, you know, you have to look at this, like with the 39 steps, it was, think about how restricted Hitchcock was. I mean, this is 1939, but if you watch that movie, there's such a, a huge story being told that you can almost see his frustration in, you know, what he was restrained and able to do. So it's like, it's, it's kind of fun to watch and think, you know, oh yeah, if you made this movie now, it'd be a big epic spectacle, you know, with big action scenes and, you know, it's such of that nature. But, um, you know, Hitch especially was always able to tell such a, such a tight story, you know, with, with limited means. And also if you, if you wanted to tell a love story, you, you had to rely on the human personalities involved as opposed to, graphic sex or any kind of trick editing and the more you the more you got into it there are films that were made that really will break your heart and the more modern films have lost that ability and uh, I, I once I actually don't remember how this all happened, but I once found myself speaking in front of all of the actresses of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Oh, wow. And I mean, from Olivia de Havilland to, to Anne Sheridan and Jean Tierney, and I, I got up there and I said, you have no idea what's going on in my mind right now because you're the people who taught me how to love how to kiss, how to lose love, how to sustain loss, how to feel all of these things. And they were crying. I was crying. It was like unbelievable gift that God handed me for that one afternoon because I got to pay back these women had taught me everything, Claudette Colbert, and and I saw all of them. I mean, when I was growing up in the fifties, the there was really very little programming, and each uh, each network bought the libraries of the film studios so that. Paramount was owned by the Gene Autry group and 20th was owned by CBS and NBC owned MGM and you could watch every movie they made because they were shown 13, 15 times a week and you got to see them and see them again and see them again and you know, I used to set my alarm for three o'clock in the morning because Boomtown with Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy was going to be on. Yeah. And in that way, I, that's how I studied acting. That's how I studied movie making. And it's a bitter, bitter thing to realize that our sense of film history barely goes back to the eighties. Before that. Oh yeah, totally. You know, there there was so much, you know, change, you know, especially, you know, you talk about, you know, 
a lot of people's film history goes back to the 80s, you know. Um, I was born in the 70s, so a, a lot of my, as I've grown up, a lot of my favorite movies have shifted to be, you know, movies, you know, obviously I have that fondness for 80s films, but, you know, 70s, 60s, and I, it's like the older I get, I think, uh, I appreciate, you know, the older the movies I start appreciating, I guess, you know, so it's it's kind of a weird Weird trend. You know, you owe it to yourself. You really do. That um, the censorship was such that uh, if a man was in a bedroom, uh, he had to have one foot on the on the ground. Uh, There was no open mouth kiss. There was no alluding to sex. There was no. You couldn't show a toilet bowl. You. Uh, married people who slept in separate twin beds and imagine what the writers did Ben Hecht the Ben Hecht sent a telegram to his partner uh, MacArthur who was married to Helen Hayes and the telegram was get out here there's millions to be made and they're all idiots that's that's awesome. That's amazing. How good writers took over. That that's amazing. Um, speaking of writers, one of my you know when I was growing up, I you know what I would do is I would just I would literally watch anything I could find to watch. Like you were talking about, it was like any kind of movie, and I especially obviously early on fell in love with Jaws and Close Encounters, and by extension, uh, you as an actor. So one movie I discovered at a, a pretty young age, it's probably pretty weird for an eight year old to get into this movie, but was the goodbye girl. Um, you know, si- Neil Simon, Neil Simon became, you know, a- as I, you know, became a film lover, one of my favorite writers, he's amazing. Um, so what was it like working with, with him at that stage in your career? <laughs> it was, uh, there are no words. <laughs> Uh, actually, there was a film being made called Bogart Slept Here. Okay, yeah. And Bogart Slept Here was a film that was the story of what happens to a young actor when he becomes a star. And it was loosely based on what happened to Dustin Hoffman when he did The Graduate. Okay. And the film was being directed by Mike Nichols, written by Neil, and starring Robert De Niro. And one day, a friend of mine called me and said, did you hear that Bobby De Niro got fired today? And I said, bullshit, (laughs) who's gonna fire Robert De Niro? Well, it turns out he was fired, and Nichols left the project, and some months later, and, and, and people started calling me and saying, they knew when I was starting, I was replacing Bob and I was going to get X amount of money and I was starting this at this moment. And so I called the producer and I said, do you want to talk to me for any reason? And he said, no, (laughs) that was that. And a few months later, they called me and asked me to read, to do a reading of the, the movie. And, uh, so we did a reading at the producer's house, Ray Stark's house. Neil was there. And as soon as the, the, as we were reading the screenplay, I knew this film was never gonna happen. And when the film was, we, 
finished reading it, I raised my hand and I said, um, here, I don't think you can really make this movie because no matter how terrible the experiences are that happen to this character, he's, you know, his, his wife hates him and his ch- children hate him and, and he's tempted by this and that. Mm-hmm. And he loses this and that. The audience is not going to give a shit because he's a movie star. And in our culture, being a movie star just trumps everything. And so, and when I said that, Neil said that I was right, but he had an idea. And three weeks later or a month later, we were reconvened to write, to, to do a reading of the prequel to Bogart's Left Here, which is how they meet, which is the Goodbye Girl. And in that one reading, Neil had heard me as an actor so well that the, the screenplay for the Goodbye Girl sounded as if it had been tailored for me. Mm-hmm. And it was, and that's the movie we we went out and made, and 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 that's I, I think that that holds true even now. If you try to get sympathy for a celebrity, you can't because he's a celebrity, and that means X, Y, and Z to the culture, and I don't care. <laughs> I don't yeah, care what happens to him. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Right. Yeah. Um, and there were scenes in that movie where he was sitting on a, on a street corner sobbing, and and really his heart was being torn apart, and you didn't care. <laughs> oh, come on! You're a movie star. <laughs> so, is there a uh, is there a filmmaker right now, living or dead, that you would love to work with? Like, if you could go back in time, even just and work with one filmmaker, you know, is there you know at any point is there Anybody you've ever thought that, man, to have worked with this person? If I, yeah, I mean, I, I could give you a whole slew of names from the earlier times. But the filmmakers today are are uh, so cut off from what, I mean, when the, when a majority of the American film businesses sequel upon sequel upon sequel or mechanical monsters living in a deep ocean there's very little to admire and uh, but in the old days hell uh, I would have loved to have worked with Frank Capra Mm, and Hitchcock and you name it, John Ford. Mm-hmm. And those are the people that I grew up with and whose work I admired. As a matter of fact, it would probably have helped me had I gotten a chance to work with some of them because they would have helped me define me to myself. They would have understood who my constituency was and why I was a film star 
and they could have helped me answer that question. Excellent. You know, John Wayne wasn't John Wayne until John Ford met him. And do you find that kind of as an actor, do you find that you kind of discover a new part of yourself kind of working with different, with with different directors on different parts like that? Not really different directors um, because there are so few who, there are so few directors who really direct in the way that I, that I expect directors to work. The directors don't watch the actors. They watch Video Village and they're not, um, most most directors today think that their job in terms of actors is done when they've cast the part. And a lot of the casting mechanism is very, very complex. But once it's done, hold on one second. So once, uh, once that's done, they usually just, uh, unfortunately, leave the actors alone. And actors need directors. And I think Stephen is one of the few directors that really still mixes it up with, with actors and offers suggestions and timing, etc. Because the, the newer directors basically think that when you shoot master close-up over the shoulder, master close-up over the shoulder, they can put the timing together as they wish later on. And they're full of it. And they don't know what they're doing. And it's too bad because uh, they don't even let themselves be, um, be acknowledged within the endeavor. They don't stamp it. And they could uh, far more than they do now. There are very few. I mean, I think Clint Eastwood is a wonderful director. And at the same time, you'd be hard-pressed to gather all of his films and, and put a signature stamp on them and say, that's a, that's a Clint Eastwood movie. You couldn't do that about Steven. With Steven, you can actually say, that's a Steven Spielberg film. But there are very few like that. Yeah, very very few auteurs out there nowadays, right? Um, now, let's talk about Steven Spielberg for a, thing, for a second. One thing I've I've always wanted to ask you, I've always had this one question that I would have, I was like, if I could ever ask Richard Dreyfuss one question, it'd be this. What do you think happens to Roy after, at the end of Close Encounters? Like, like he just, he gets on that ship at the end and... And you never hear from him again for about a million years. Yeah, I mean... And I once uh, invented a sequel. Um, when asked, Stephen would say that he'd already done the sequel, which was uh, E.T. Right. And I I have a sequel, which is... It's a short trailer, and it's... Hi, I'm the actor who played Roy Neary. I got on that ship... 30 years ago and uh, I've come back and I know how to cure cancer and how to achieve immortality and how to achieve inner harmony and bliss but I'm not going to tell anyone until I get myself a really strong entertainment lawyer 
so that I don't get ripped off by the studios. Well, right, because you got to get the book deal and the movie deal and the TV show. Right. And and that's what, that would have been my trailer. So. <laughs> but that's amazing. Because my wife's just always like, so he just, like, leaves his family. <laughs> just... <laughs> Like everybody, he just he just goes. Like, you know, what does this family thing happen to him? Does the government just go, well, ma'am, you know, he was part of an accident and you Well know. Stephen says <laughs> that had he been married and with children, he wouldn't have made that ending. Um I have a problem with that conclusion because there is no ending. There is no movie without that ending. And uh he would have had to have rewritten him as a bachelor and it wouldn't have had the emotional draw. Oh, I, I agree, yeah. It should only have been... The movie he made was the movie he made and it was a brilliant, daring, noble effort. And it's not a question of what he would have done. He probably would have done another movie. Yeah, and Spielberg, you know, was going, you know, you know, you said uh, you said something about his divorce at the time, you know, and with E.T. there was so much kind of, you know, that family, that kind of divided family uh, themes in a lot of his movies at that time. And and I think as filmmakers, you know, we kind of go through that, you know, our films are reflective of what we're going, you know, of our life. So it's it's easy to look back, you know. 20 years later and go, eh, well, maybe I wouldn't have done it that way. But, you know, you would have because that's what you were experiencing at the time. So, Well, actually, that's one of the ways I used to describe um, Stephen's films is that they all shared a kind of love story with the American suburban middle class. And the families are always sundered and the kids are always you know, a little out of, out of whack. And, uh, and that was his personal experience and, and that's what he drew upon. And I suppose, and, and that's, and that was as valid as anything else. And then he went beyond that. He, he actually grew up in a sense that he went beyond his own personal experiences and was able to make Schindler, which was, him connecting with it completely himself. Yeah. Who is the, uh, I mean, you know, aside from Spielberg, who's the, who's the best filmmaker you've ever worked with? Uh, or, or, or maybe, maybe redirect. Is there anybody that you would love to go back and work, work with again? I mean, is there somebody that you're oh, like, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I would have loved to have worked with Mazursky more. And I would have loved to have worked with her, Ross. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would have, with a qualified uh, yes, I would love to have worked with Kubrick. And uh, I would have loved to have worked with Woody Allen when he was making uh, Annie Hall. Sure. Annie Hall, I think, is probably the greatest romantic comedy made since World War II. Oh, yeah, certainly up there, absolutely. And it's a, you know, he was in the zone when he made that film. And as a matter of fact, I 
I became uh, slightly, well, I don't know how I became, but I turned down the lead in a Woody Allen movie, and he just flipped out. <laughs> he just couldn't believe that anyone would do that. How dare you? But I did it. Yep, it happens. All right. Uh, well, I, I I know you're you're short on time. How, how how much more time do I have with you? Do you know? Uh, I'll tell you when the next uh, call. What time is it now? Uh, we're about one o'clock oh, right now. Is, um, someone just call is calling in right now. What time is it right now? One o'clock. So it's yeah. We gotta go. All right, buddy. Well, I appreciate your time. Um, you're gonna you be should in- say one thing in the article. And that is the evening is not limited to Jaws. Uh, yeah, that's what I've been telling everybody, that you're going to be talking about you know, a, a variety of, of stuff throughout your career. So, Okay. All right, well, enjoy your time in KC. Thanks for, very much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. I appreciate Are it, Richard. Are you there that night? Uh, I'm going to try to get out there, yes, absolutely. Be worth it. Uh, oh, totally. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's I've got a couple of things I'm trying to move around, but yeah, I'd love to get out there and meet you. It's, but it's I don't been, know if they've used this phrase or not, but the, my name for that evening is a dwindling resource. <laughs> so I'll talk to you later. All right, buddy. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. Well, that was Richard Dreyfus. That was amazing. Uh, here on Real Hooligans, um, um, amazing talking to him. Um, as I sit here and try to collect my thoughts, uh, didn't get as far into his career as I would have liked to, but um, you know, in limited time, he's got a bunch of other interviews he's doing today. Um, so yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, just getting his opinion, working on with Neil Simon, and uh, of course, you know, Close Encounters. That was that was the one I had to get in there. Um, but yeah, so if you're in Kansas City, uh, definitely make sure you get out to um, see him. And I'm going to try to get out there myself. It's going to be an amazing night, April fourth. Thursday, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm losing my voice here, and I kind of started cracking there at the end of that discussion. Ah, all right, all right, not as smart as crap being sad without David here today, but um, yeah, that's going to do it for this part one of the Richard Dreyfus episode of Real Hooligans. Um, this is, I believe, episode five, so episode seven will be part two. Um, let's see, we got coming up um, Planet Comic Con stuff. Uh, that's going on here in Kansas City this weekend. It actually starts today, which is Friday. So uh, definitely, if you're you know if you're around, if you're in the surrounding area, drive out to KC. The NCAA tournament's in town this weekend, so it's like a wackadoo weekend in Kansas City. Um, let's see what else. So that following weekend will be, excuse me, the Richard Drive his episode part two, and I'm gonna have. Excuse me, I'm going to have David and I believe Michael Smith are going to be with me that day. And we will talk Close Encounters. We will talk, um, let's see, I think we'll talk The Goodbye Girl. It might be good to go revisit that one. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite movies he did was Let It Ride. Um, you know, when I was growing up. Not, you know, not, obviously not going to be, you know, in the top ten Richard Dreyfuss movies for most people, but... I loved it. It was a fun movie. Um, Mr. Holland's Opus, you know, another movie he was nominated for. He won an Oscar for Goodbye Girl, but um, yeah. 
So, uh, da da da. Let's see. Follow us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash real hooligans. You can follow us at real hooligans on Twitter, at real underscore hooligans on Instagram. I am Tim English. Um, and I need to start remembering to say this at the end of each episode, but sometimes I get too carried away and forget. But, um, if you don't know who I am, I'm a, Film critic in Kansas City, voting member of the Broadcast Film Critics Association, Kansas City Film Critics Circle. Uh, do radio reviews for X105, FM, and KC, so shout out to them. Uh, we'll probably get a Fentra and Patrick, the show that I do on that. And I'm actually going to head over there this afternoon to talk Dumbo. Uh, but we'll talk Dumbo in the next episode. Uh, let's see. Also coming up, I don't know, man. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to do, so we're, we're, we're cracking at it. You can follow us on Spotify and on iTunes and Google Play, if that's a thing. Is it a thing? I guess it's a thing. Um, we're hosted by Podomatic. So, Real Hooligans, episode, whatever I just said, five. Uh, Richard Dreyfus. that was amazing. So, um, give a shout-out. Let me know what you thought of the interview. Um you know, I mean, it just kind of started rolling like right when we got on the phone. So, um, didn't have, like I said, didn't have it, wasn't able to get as far as I wanted, but that was great, man. And, uh, we will definitely, um, dig into his career a little bit more when we time jump, uh, time jump his career here in a couple of weeks. So follow us, talk to us and, uh, let us know what you want to hear. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh, this is Tim English for Real Hooligans over and out later on. <laughs>